Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast in which we watch a romantic comedy and tell you why one of the options, the one who was chosen, was chosen poorly, usually. But then some weeks we just watch classics of Wallowa cinema and then enthuse about them giddily for an hour and a half. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Corky. Corky Collins. Uh, recent <laughs> listeners will know that I've been changing everyone's display names in our recording software to match a character from the movie we cover. And Corky Collins was written in the stars. Let's be honest. And here I am over here, in spite of the fact that my name is Jennifer, I can do a fairly serviceable Jennifer Tilly vocal impersonation, and I am wearing red lipstick at this moment. I have been assigned the title Caesar. (laughs) Something about you just says Joe Pantoliano to me, Jen, you know? We both do have like our teeth are a little bit whacked out in a charming way. There's a maniac essence uh, that you both share. Well, don't expect me to run if I'm about to get caught in trouble. I will come up with a wild and wily on the fly plan to take care of it. Unfortunately, I'm not able to change my own name ever because I'm the host in the recording software. So I'm just Samantha. You know, you could be Violet or you could be Gino, but I think that we're going to say that you are Sue, the bartender. I take that as a high compliment. Good. It was intended as such. We're talking about Bound. (laughs) I was going to say, we didn't even say what movie we're talking about yet. Only one movie has been audacious enough to name a main character Corky, in my knowledge, and and that is Bound. Yeah, and a main sexy character. I'm sure one of the Godfathers has a has a Corky floating around who gets murdered in the first two minutes, but we won't count that. This is the only mafia cinema that I recognize. <laughs> <laughs> Other mafia cinema exists? No. (laughs) Are you trying to incite the rage of the Scorsese fans after we've already alienated the Marvel fans? (laughs) We won't have anyone left. The Scorsaxes? Look, on this podcast, it's just us against the world. I'm just thinking of like, what if Stan culture, uh, you know, like fan cams and like people spending all their time tweeting from seven different accounts about one celebrity, like happened around Scorsese as well. I think the closest thing to that was when he did that video where he was like answering his daughter's questions about feminine products. Do you remember? Did any of you see this or was this a vivid hallucination? I loved it. I was going to go with hallucination, but carry on. <laughs> he, she showed him things like eye, uh, like an eyelash curler and like uh, other weird curiosities. Um, and, and Scorsese guessed what they were, sometimes correctly, often <laughs> incorrectly, to hilarious effect. To be fair, an eyelash curler does look like an instrument of torture and could be used as such if you were really determined. I, I, am, I can't remember what he he thought a diva cup was i imagine he thought it was a little tiny hat and he's right <laughs> <laughs> let's see jen are you ready to all right summarize the greatest movie ever made i am ready and also in the year of my birth year 96 good things were born in 96 corky sadie collins and the the film bound <laughs> 96 baby year of the rat baby all right damn you're the rat you're the same you're like the the second 
the next coming in the cycle of everybody who was born in 1984, the year before me, was the rat. I got landed with the ox. My brother is a dragon. Unfair. Damn. I'm sure that that gave him a complex that lasts into adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm... I'm rat, but I'm not sure. You can't be rat because you were born in 86 and rat is 1984. No, I'm 87. What was You're rat? You're 87? Um, hmm, hang on. Let me I'm see. i to look this up. Oh, yeah. Of course you'd be 87 because you um, edge over, you know, into January. Rabbit. Rabbit. Samantha's oh, our little rabbit. bunny. rabbit. Hooray. All right. Now that we have all made sure that everyone knows what our primary- <laughs> Our segue Zodiac be is that Jennifer Tilly is like a rabbit come to life. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if a rabbit became a human woman, she would take the form of Jennifer Tilly and sound like Jennifer Tilly. Like a sexy rabbit. Like the rabbit that Thumper wants to bone in Bambi. The Jessica rabbit. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with <laughs> the Jennifer Jessica rabbit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You had a sexy rabbit in pop culture history right there, and you skipped but right over her to go do some psychosexual stuff with Bambi. She was humanoid looking. You're talking about rabbits here. Like, come on. Oh, wait, you were talking about Jessica Rabbit the whole time? I thought you meant like the actual animal. <laughs> oh, no. I do not find rabbits themselves <laughs> sexy. They have to be anthropomorphized to a certain degree. <laughs> Technically, she wasn't even any part rabbit. She just married into a rabbit family. (laughs) She's rabbit by marriage only. To at least shape of water degree, they have to be anthropomorphized, you know? They have to meet the shape of water test of human likeness. (laughs) So like Mass Effect aliens. There is a terrible anime that I won't get into right now, but it is called Beastars and it has an anthropomorphic rabbit who like has sex a lot and it's... It's an insane anime. I hate it. (laughs) And yet I've watched it. Corey started watching an anime a couple weeks ago that was like, it was like every day after school, all the kids get together and play a high stakes game of rock, paper, scissors with like $5 million on the line. Do either of you know what what this is? It was maddening to me. (laughs) I I need to watch it immediately. They're getting the money from. Five mil, this like far outstrips what Quirky and Violet were going for in the film we are discussing today. We will discuss it at some point. (laughs) (laughs) We're in Sadie's mushroom well corner. We'll just keep finding new things to distract ourselves. Like like Sadie, my LaCroix flavor today is mango. Mango brought to you by LaCroix. LaCroix, zero sweetener, zero sodium equals innocent because the beverages that we drink are directly related to our morality as people in Mm. this terrible um, food and dieting culture we all live in. I've got a guava Sao Paulo with an immortality spell on it in the fridge just waiting for me to crack it open. I had the hibiscus flavor recommended to me after last week's episode, but I have not yet tried it. Okay, you're making these up or I don't have a good grocery store. (laughs) I feel like the hibiscus flavor is overrated. I feel like it doesn't taste like hibiscus. It just tastes like a generic berry, grapefruit mm. type of flavor. And no, Samantha, like you don't have a good grocery store. I taste how hibiscus flower smells. <laughs> yeah. I, I would truly... Who do I have to fuck, marry, and or kill in order to get a rose-flavored La Croix? Because I would do anything. Oh. <laughs> or, rose gold on the can. I'm the killed same instantly. By just, 
You yes. can get the same effect by just smelling a rose, Sadie, and then one week later drinking a glass of you water. Know, okay, it wait, would be wait, the wait, same wait, wait, exact wait, wait. sensation. I have a I have a funny anecdote to tell you all. So on YouTube, there is a YouTuber called Holistic Habits, and she is all about like crystals that like heal you with vibrations. And I watch her despite not believing anything she says. And also her hair is like down to her feet and she doesn't do anything to it. And yet it looks beautiful. So I, there must be something she's doing right. But she ran a giveaway with rose water nectar, like a bottle of rose water nectar that she was giving away. And in the description, she was like, unlike other rose water nectars, this one has up to 20,000 energetic vibrations in it to boost your own vibration levels up to like 5,000, which is the recommended daily vibration measurement. And I was like, <laughs> I, I love that she was just talking talking about this as though it was real. And she was like, she also thought that like her one of her favorite drinks of all time was just a, a glass full of lukewarm water with a big ass rose quartz in it that has been sitting in the water for at least 30 minutes. She's like, the vibrations of this is unparalleled. But anyway, I won that giveaway. And I received my rose water nectar. <laughs> <laughs> promptly how are your vibrations they plummeted <laughs> no <laughs> I can't, I can't. but that bottle lasted me forever because fully like one eighth of a teaspoon made my water taste like rose perfume and i loved it there was a period where i only drank rose water for like Year straight. <laughs> well, clearly you should get some more high vibrational rose water and just flavor some plain LaCroix. The kind that I got that I won at the giveaway was like 60 bucks normally, which is holy in, shit. Thanks. So you, you pay for those vibrations. Yeah. If you want to vibrate, you got to pay for it. <laughs> and if you want to be my lover, you've got <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait until Gen Z is in charge of the FDA. <laughs> then food labels can have, you know, like uh, sodium, carbohydrates, protein, vibes by percentage. Like how, how many vibration, millig- microtons of vibration you get from, uh, from everything per day with a recommended daily value, of course. <laughs> recommended daily vibes. <laughs> Well, shall we talk about Bound? We shall talk about Bound. As Sadie said, the greatest movie ever made, the greatest movie we have yet discussed on this podcast. I agree. So we start out panning down a closet that's filled with a bunch of great stilettos. Jennifer Tilly is giving us a sexy, breathy voiceover. And Gina Gershon is on the floor tied up with a towel gag in her mouth looking a little bit the worse for wear. How did we get here? Well, we flashed to Gina Gershon getting asked to hold an elevator. (laughs) Jen, I'm just thinking how much worse this movie would be if it started with a voiceover of Gina Gershon going, you're probably wondering how I got in this situation. (laughs) My name's Corky. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up, everybody just called me Corky. Flashback. The year is like 1923 and she's rolling a hoop down the street somehow. Even though it's set in the 90s and it's she's like 25. It's like bound as the Kissing Booth franchise like style. 
Oh, curse oh, it, thought. God. All right. Banish it, it from bur- Purge it. We need to drink some rose water and get our vibrations back up. So we don't Quick talk sip about of rose water. Bears. Yep, on it. All right. So now we're at an elevator, which Gina Gershon is holding open for us. Actually, for Jennifer Tilly and some dude who is with her, who at this time is just immensely unimportant because he is just there tangentially present to this meeting of the two sexiest people to ever wear leather jackets. And they are both like hardcore giving each other the hey girl, hey girl, hey eyes. Gita Gershon watches Jennifer Tilly's legs walk down the hall and then she smiles with amusement when she hears Jennifer Tilly having sex with Elevator Man in the next apartment. The next morning, Gita Gershon gets interrupted while rotorootering some extremely disturbing looking substance out of a bathtub drain. And it's Jennifer Tilly with coffee. Jennifer Tilly's name is Violet and Gina Gershon's name, as we have discussed, is Corky. Obviously, they both want to fuck, especially Corky, who goes out looking for a conspirator in said activity at this bar where only lesbians in black leather are allowed entry. But she gets run off by a jealous cop after hitting on her girlfriend. Corky has just gotten out of five years in prison, hence working under the table on Mr. Bianchini's apartment next door to Violet's apartment. But fortunately, Corky does not have to wait much longer to get laid. The next morning, she receives a call from Mr. Bianchini asking her to go next door and help Violet with some handyman shit. Violet looks even more incredible than usual and wants Corky to retrieve her earring from the kitchen sink drain. At this point, we're about five minutes into the movie. Corky is unscrewing the pipe while Violet's legs supervise. Water is dripping and already this is the horniest movie I have ever seen. And then... It gets even hornier when they take it to the couch. I'm not even going to summarize this part because you should just go watch it. You will not regret it. Sadly. (laughs) Or we could do a 70 minute explicit summary of it and get our podcast banished from Spotify. (laughs) Just all of their dialogue. We just, you know, like LARP it. (laughs) They have some great lines in this. Uh, anyway, I'll wait to gush about the movie. This movie is just amazing. We will, the <laughs> as this is also the horniest movie ever made, there will be lots of gushing happening once the summary is over. Sadly, they are interrupted in the, the gushing that's happening on the couch by Violet's elevator man, who is a younger, cleaner cut version of the guy who wants to be put back in the Matrix so that he can eat a good steak. He's about to go off, but then he's mollified when he realizes that Corky is a woman because in 1996 straight cis guys didn't know about lesbians his name is caesar and he's pretty high level in the mob he gives Corey a scare corky excuse me not Corey. that is samantha's wife corky is gina gershon in the 1996 fantastic movie bound caesar gives corky like a terrifying amount of cash money in like a friendly but intimidating fashion Violet, however, has like proverbial balls of adamantium and clearly no fear of torture or death because she follows Corky to her truck so they can finish off what they started on Corky's floor mattress bed, which they do, and it is beautiful. We learn that Corky is a thief and Violet is professionally the girlfriend of a money launderer. The next morning, Corky's in a great mood until she bumps into this asshole who's trying to get buzzed up to Violet's apartment. She hears Vi moaning with said asshole through the wall, and then Corky and Violet fight about it after their next tryst, because Corky obviously is still going to do it with Violet, even though she's mad at her about having sex with this creepy-looking asshole man. So they fight about it, but Corky is not yet really buying from Violet that sex work is work, which is kind of offensive. But Corky has a change of heart after she sees the asshole being escorted back into the apartment by a young, skinny, manic-looking Christopher Maloney and some goons. The asshole, whose name is Shelly, skimmed from their business so now he's getting the shit kicked out of him and a finger removed with a pair of curved tin snips this is all really bumming violet out 
because this is like her bathroom, like she has to shower in and probably she can't even go pee if she wants because a man is having his fingers cut off in there. But Caesar insists that she stay and just watch TV or something until he gets overridden by an even higher up than him named Mickey, who has terrifying Christopher Walken eyes and a soft spot for Violet. Violet goes out to a bar with Corky and lays out the scenario. She wants out of the life. She wants to be with Corky. And she wants Corky to help her steal the $2 million that Shelly stole from the mafia in order to fund this venture. Corky is obviously suspicious of Violet's intentions, but she gets really horned up for danger thievery with women who, women who look and sound like Jennifer Tilly. So she says she'll think about it. In the meantime, Caesar comes back to the apartment pissed off to all fuck with a double armload of blood-soaked money. His rival, Johnny, who is Christopher Maloney in that enormous, like, maroon suit, blew Shelly's head off all over the paper bills of the $2 million. And now Caesar has to spend the entire night literally laundering it before Johnny's super boss dad, Gino, turns up the next night to pick it up. Corky's all in now, once Violet tells her about this. Comes up with a plan. Violet prepares for Gino's arrival and acts like everything is business as usual. But then while Caesar's in the shower, whoops, she drops and shatters the bottle of Glenlivet that is Gino's favorite drink, necessitating (laughs) running out to get a new one. As she leaves, Corky slips by her through the doorway and picks the locks on the case containing the money with her awesome-looking lock-picking earrings, replacing the money with newspapers. When Violet returns, Corky slips back out with the money, and Violet puts on a convincing show of having seen Johnny leaving the apartment, but it's still two hours before Gino's flight is said to arrive. When Caesar checks the case and finds the newspapers instead of the money inside, he just knows that Johnny has set him up, but then the plan goes off the rails when Caesar doesn't just immediately abandon Violet and skip town. This is when we start to suspect that Caesar might be really terrifying instead of just mildly terrifying. Gino, Johnny, and a bodyguard arrive for the tensest conversation ever recorded on film, ending with Caesar murdering the boss of Chicago, his son, and his goon. Then some cops arrive to check up on the report of gunshots, but Caesar says they're just cops, and he's quick enough to hide the bodies in evidence and deliver a plausible alibi, like that he, like, his hearing aid batteries are run out and he was playing a loud movie and anyway. Also, the cops don't notice the blood-soaked rug or the bathtub full of bodies in spite of ample opportunity to do so. So they are not very effective cops. Caesar drags Violet across town to tear up Johnny's apartment looking for the money. Meanwhile, Corky hides the money inside of plastic bags inside of her paint buckets, which are full of paint. Caesar is completely losing it and he's scary as hell. Violet is not in a very good situation here. When she tries to talk him into running by telling him there's not much time, he simply buys some more by calling Mickey and pretending that he still has the money safely in his custody, but that Gino and company never arrived. He takes Violet back to their apartment where Corky attempts a rescue, but being a thief, going up against an experienced murderer, ends up getting captured herself. Caesar, not demonstrating a very good sense of vision or understanding of human attraction, is astounded that Violet has betrayed him for Corky. Corky is not good at shooting dudes, but is amazing at being a badass, taking a blow and not folding under interrogation. But Violet, when she drops her little sweet facade for Caesar, is scarier than anyone we have met in this movie so far. Caesar gets really enraged about the women defying him, and so he's going to start torturing them to find out where the money is. He starts threatening to cut Violet's fingers off, a la Shelly's finger, and I was really scared there for a minute that she was going to lose a pinky. But Corky has good sense about self-preservation and immediately folds and tells him that the money is in the paint buckets next door. At this point, the door buzzes, and it's Mickey arriving to check up on him. So that is when 
sees her, tosses Corky in the closet, where we saw her at the beginning of the movie, hauls Violet into the bathroom and enlists her to help him at, you know, upon pain of death at dealing with Mickey and company, which they seemingly successfully do, even though Mickey is suspicious and they get him to leave. Caesar hauls Violet across the hall to check and see if the money is actually in the paint buckets, which it is. But for some reason, he lets go of Violet and takes the gun away from her while he does this. And Violet books it the fuck out of there as soon as he kicks over the bucket and sees that the money is there. Then they have the scary ass chase sequence where they're running down the staircase and Caesar's coming after her with the gun. But then Violet makes it to the elevator before he does and he sees her in the elevator and he's like, fuck you bitch, and has to run all the way back up the stairs while she's on the elevator. Violet, being a genius, calls Mickey and pulls a hole. Oh, Mickey, I'm so sorry. Caesar made me do it. He made me do it. I'm so scared. And so obviously Mickey is going to come back and rescue her. She is taking the elevator not down to leave the building, but up to go rescue Corky, who busted out of the closet on her own steam and somehow got out of the ropes. Went and set a little trap where she looks like her paint boot prints are going into the bathroom and tries to bean Caesar in the head with like a large wrench, but he dodges it, apparently having had like large wrenches swung upon him before. Things are not looking good for our girl. He knocks Corky back out again, but then Violet comes back in with a pistol. Caesar's standing in the white paint, and this is his big, like, moment that he really should have won acting awards for. He's, like, trying to talk her down and all, like, oh, Violet, I know that if you, like, if you were gonna shoot me, you would have done it a long time ago. Like, you you just don't want to. Which is the worst thing you should say to someone who has a gun pointed (laughs) to your head, but... I mean, Gino already tried it on him earlier in the movie and it failed, but it sets us up for like the greatest ending of a movie ever when Violet with Jennifer Tilly's amazing voice is like, you don't know shit, Caesar. And then just fully unloads the clip in that motherfucker and he like falls to his knees and the blood is splattering all in the white paint on the floor and it was amazing. And... Then I guess they just hid his body in there or whatever while Mickey came back and Violet was all like, he made me do it, Mickey, or whatever. Because then when we see it the next morning, Mickey is saying that his offer to Violet still stands. She's like, thanks, Mickey, but you know, I I really got to get out of here. I got to get out of the life. And he's all flustered because- You do such a good Jennifer Tilly impression. Oh, thank you. I'd give your Joe Pantoliano a two out of five, though, just to keep your head from getting too big. It, it It needs more work. I feel like I can do his manic eyeball pretty well but the voice is not there i don't have the accent down i was trying to work on uh fucking dark in here Uh, i was i was just saying it over and over again trying to get ready just sitting in my room say it again that was definitely better than my (laughs) uh let's oh let me finish the movie though first and then we will, Samantha will record the rest of this podcast in Joe Pantaleone's voice. No, no, it will just be me saying that for the next hour. <laughs> we'll lose all listeners then. It's Scorsese fucking, fans included. Dark in, uh, I can't fucking do it. I can't fucking do here. it. Fucking dark anyway, in here. Anyway, Caesar's dead. The mafia is fooled. What will happen to our heroines? Well, Violet changes out the red lipstick that she just kissed Mickey in to a more neutral matte lipstick that is good for making out before she goes to meet Corky, who has purchased a brand new shiny enormous red truck. They get into the red truck and Corky's like, you know what's the difference between us, Violet? And Violet's like, no. And Corky's like, not much. And then they make out a bunch and then they ride off into the sunset. And it was awesome. Yeah, that line is incredible. Let's talk about it 
I'll talk about it a little later, I know, but gosh, this movie is so perfect. The only thing that could have made it better is if we get a mid-credit scene of the cops coming back to that (laughs) those two apartments and being (laughs) just looking at this pile of bodies and then being like, "Uh, you want to get lunch?" And one cop the who's like uh, uh caesar's like oh hey you guys want a beer and he's like oh like yeah the, and the other one is like no well we're on duty and i was like oh man <laughs> sorry to you this would be kind of weird if they're sitting in there on the blood carpet so like okay does like massive amount of blood not have kind of a an organic smell a you smell? would notice <laughs> I feel like it's it got would. a smell, right? It's it like has to smell fluid. a little bit like iron, right? <laughs> yeah, because you could. They smell- should have I mean, had a I- cover for that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Spritz yeah, of Lysol I- around the joint, like. <laughs> I feel like it would have to. Just have a bunch of vitamins on the table and be like, oh, I'm just taking my supplements, officers, while watching <laughs> film noir really loud. Because <laughs> I also, my hearing aids just casually went out suddenly. And <laughs> <laughs> those bodies, I'm the director of a local theater. Those are our prop bodies for our play tomorrow night about a mid-level gangster who finds himself squeezed in the middle of his money laundering up. Oh, whoops. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite genre. (laughs) So, Samantha, you have seen this movie before, correct? I, you know... I, 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 this is the only Wachowski I haven't seen, shamefully. And so I think sometimes with a movie I know is really going to be good and that I'll cherish forever, I like put off watching it because I'm like need to make it special. Does that make any sense? Or am I just dealing with yes. lingering OCD symptoms? Um, I, I, was I, was, I was that way with The Handmaiden, the South Korean lesbian historical movie i put off watching it for a really really long time because i was like i just know that this is going to be the shit but that i'm going to get really upset because no other movies are like it and i was right and that's how i feel right now with bound because this movie would be a blessing to receive in the year 2021 but the fact that it came out in 1996 is like incredible (laughs) (laughs) like right i love it i love how not only is it like good by today's standards in in every way but especially the way that they depict the relationship between violet and corky but also like for being in 1996, outstanding. So good. Anyway, Jen, you were going to say something? Question mark? Out fucking standing. I'm excited that we were all bound virgins going into this. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all experiencing it together as one. No, I've been aware of this movie's existence for a long time. Back in like, uh, back in like the days of 2004, when, you know, like to 2006, when I was obsessed with the L word and anything that like showed titty in like a woman on woman love scene, but insisted that I wasn't bisexual at the same time. Obviously, this came up in my research. But at that time, that was still when you had to have like Netflix mail you the DVDs. And it was not available at my local Blockbuster or my local little mom and pop rental store. So I just like saw some stills online and never experienced 
the majesty before. But lo and behold, (laughs) (laughs) this week I renewed my Hulu subscription so that I could watch the season of The Bachelorette. And guess what is streaming on Hulu? It is bound. And if you have Hulu, you should go watch it immediately. Just turn off this podcast and come back when you're finished. I love the thought of young Jen on like geocities.com searching for like movies that show titty. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Just the that those awful early web pages that honestly loaded faster than today's web pages because they weren't burdened by like seven thousand pop up ads that just had like screenshots of movies and like timestamps of like neon honestly, green text like, on black backgrounds. Yeah, it was it. It was like really disgusting in hindsight and like not, but like Mr. Skin or whatever would have like any time that even like the, you know, the most unknown like actor would show a boob in a movie. There was a screenshot on there. And how did they even screenshot it then? I don't know. Like we didn't even have camera phones to like take a picture of your TV screen, but somebody out there was doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Sadie, I wanted to mention there is a Netflix sort of knockoff of The Handmaiden called The Perfection. Um, I've Allison never heard of Williams, this. I think as a cellist, it's very oh, much just like the imitating The Handmaiden structure. And um, it's it's if you're looking for like the Lacroix, like if The Handmaiden is a full <laughs> sugar soda, uh, the hand the Perfection was like drinking the Diet Coke Lacroix. I'd, I'll put it that way. Interesting. <laughs> But Bound, a movie that is better than even a full sugar soda, perhaps we'll compare it to a Coke Icy um, oh, in, in yeah. the hierarchy <laughs> of sugary drinks. Probably. Or I would, I would give this the limited edition Cherry Dr. Pepper Icy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, Sadie, that there there are ways in which like queer indie cinema has like gotten worse or just gotten less money since the 90s. There was like a real sweet spot in the 90s that we talk about a lot on this podcast, where like smaller studios or imprints of big studios were like taking risks and making really new, interesting LGBTQ cinema that, you know, people are rediscovering today and calling camp classics without knowing what the word camp means. Yeah. I, (laughs) well, like the thing that I think is really wonderful about this movie is like in the time, in the nineties, queer cinema was still very independent. And so I feel like a lot of times it was bad or, you know, in in modern standards, not well done or like not appropriate or like offensive in different ways. But it also takes risks and creates really fun, interesting dynamics. Like it's just, it's so good. It's like, yes, they're lesbians and that's like another layer to it. And there's like 20,000 other layers that are just so good. And of course, I mean, it's the Wachowskis. So the directorial vision for it is just really well done. There's so many shots in the film that are both gunshots and also cinematic shots that are really fun to watch. Um, I mean, most notably when Caesar is killed and he dies in the white paint and you can see the blood spattering down into the white paint and it's so good. 
But I, ah, uh, I can't, I love it. I love it. I can't, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. Shut me up. It's amazing. Jennifer Tilly under clotheslines full of drying money is great. Oh, Gina Gershon uh, manipulating pipes is amazing. I was reading a bit about it and the film is, does really amazing things with like texture and, and, and objects, you know, we often see Gina Gershon in front of like, or um, Jennifer Tilly when they're like sharing that wall in front of very like textured wallpapers and like that kind of thing. And then uh-huh. when you're in deeper into Violet's apartment, it's all these like stark, hard, like masculine edges. Um, and it's just like, it's so symbolically rich on that level of like Violet ping-ponging back and forth between this world of men with their hard cases and their puny little guns. And then that like rich, dark, like claustral universe that she shares, um, she shares with Corky. It's just like, it's doing so much without kind of hitting you over the head with that, with how much it's doing. Yeah. This was yeah. The few I watched it twice. Um, you know, I, I watched it on what Tuesday, and then I watched it again last night. And oh my god, I actually paused it on the first watch with that scene where they both know, like, they're like Violet is in serious danger now, and the jig's about to be up, and Corky is stuck in the absolute worst scenario I can possibly imagine, where she's just having to wait and listen to what's going on through the wall to try to keep this contained and get Violet out safely. When they touch hands through the wallpaper on either side of the wall. Oh, I had to pause it at that moment and text you guys to say, I can't believe anybody, including myself as as a kid, ever believed that the Wachowskis were cis men because this is like the anti-male gaze movie. Like, this is just such a Woolawa masterpiece. Yeah, they also hired um, uh, a queer sex educator to help choreograph the sex scene in it. And, like, honestly, for the first time in my film viewing life, I feel like I've seen a scene in in a movie Uh, that actually looks like what having sex with another woman looks like. It's not like blue is the warmest color or portrait of a lady on fire where you see them go from like holding hands to like watching their like fully waxed bodies in some like operatic, (laughs) like Renaissance painting configuration, (laughs) you know, like, um, it just seemed like natural and like uh, uh, like how these two characters would actually bring themselves to this situation. Okay, one, when Corky like pulls up the accidentally with her foot, the mattress cover on her shitty little floor bed, like when she's getting yes. close to coming. That was like the sexiest thing that has ever been committed to film. And two, I was looking up stuff about this film right before we recorded and the sex educator who choreographed it is Sue the bartender from the earlier scene. <gasps> yeah. Uh, Damn. It's so good. Both a bartender and a queer sex educator. An icon. What so many like movies about lesbians that are directed by men don't get is that like the sexiness is not just like, oh, look at these two bodies next to each other it's like look at the look at the textures look at the sheets pulling up look at the way their hands touch or the way that somebody looks at somebody's uh shoulder or like how someone else is holding a glass it 
just like it understands intimacy as this like multi-textured, multi-layered, multi-dimensional thing. And when like men direct movies about lesbians, they're just like, it is hot because they both have boobs. And that (laughs) that's like the sum of their vision. (laughs) It's sort of like you were saying, like fully waxed bodies, but they're like both angled to show their boobs to the screen at the same time. Like (laughs) it's like straight men directing women having sex in movies. (laughs) Yeah. They just have to be like side to side. Like they're like laid out on a microscope um, (laughs) between little glass plates. Yeah. Oh, it's too good. And the truck at the end, come on. Oh. It's like, that's my dream. It's like yes. my fairy tale ending for someone to show up with a new truck. <laughs> and, and whisk you away with $2 million of stolen money. <laughs> right. Look, if Corey showed up one day with a Jeep Gladiator, I would quit my job and go wherever she wanted me to go. The seductive power of a woman driving a truck is unmatched, unparalleled. <laughs> it actually is kind of like I can feel people staring at me when I drive Justin to and he's got like a um, it's not even a big truck. It's a Toyota Tacoma, but it's in really good shape because he is obsessive about it like quirky with her 63 Chevy. But uh, yeah, you're lucky too, because uh, <laughs> trucks today, I, I talk all the time about Justin's Toyota Tacoma because trucks today like don't fit in parking spaces. Like I want to drive a yeah. truck, but I want to be able to like um like park it somewhere besides my own driveway, you know? It's a great truck. It's a ni- 1998 Toyota Tacoma, and I can tell because old redneck men try to buy it off of him like everywhere we go. But when I drive it around by myself and I hop out of the driver's seat, like nobody ever speaks to me or tries to buy it from me, but I can see people staring. So, you know, it's a good look. Do you drive it wearing a leather jacket with $2 million in the back? (laughs) Unfortunately, I have not figured out the $2 million (laughs) part, but... The leather jacket. Samantha, I was telling Sadie while you were brushing your teeth and fetching your LaCroix before we started recording that I did not have time, unfortunately, to do a full look to record this podcast tonight, which is probably for the best because I was really torn between going for more of a violet or more of a quirky look. But I did put on red lipstick and I did put on a leather jacket, but I have already removed it because it is like 8,000 degrees in Tennessee right now. So... There is, this is very related to the truck conversation, but there is like an early, can you hear Harriet going ham on my, <laughs> it's Harriet, my, she sounds like she Godzilla was? right now. <laughs> I thought she was oh. shooting on the to be scratching post. <laughs> She's literally like 10 feet away. She's got some Cecil between the paws. <laughs> Just Harriet give her a just second. She'll her be done. Reaction to bound to be known. <laughs> the word Cecil was in the New York Times crossword recently and allowed me to destroy my family in the time I completed that puzzle. So cat ownership allows you to humiliate your family in I ha- meaningless intellectual <laughs> exercises. Hey you! Hey you! Can you please? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I thought you were talking to Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, she's done now. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh, yes. There is a car in my city and it is like a Ford F-150 type car, like an early 90s, late 80s car. 
And it is that very specific kind of like teal color. That's it's oh, yeah. not blue. Right and from it's the not, 90s. Just, yes. And I am obsessed with it. And I see it all the time. I can't, there can't be another one. It has to be that one. And yet I see it nearly every time I go out. Like that person and I must have the exact same schedule and like the exact same places <laughs> because I always see it in the Target parking lot, in the Clover's parking lot, and the Marshall's parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you just need to have a meet cute with a woman who drives it now yeah. and then you'll be set for life. If it's an Samantha old man, I won't have I to take so uh, Oh, that'd be terrible. Let's not even think that. Let's not speak it to being. But once you meet the woman who drives this teal truck, Samantha and I will no longer have to process dating applications for Sadie via our podcast email account anymore. Yeah. So long as she's <laughs> been in prison for five years. Which I fully support her explanation for why I'm going to claim this movie also as a socialist classic because she defines robbery uh, as the redistribution of wealth, you know? Yeah. Clearly someone's brushed up on her marks in prison. So here is my question. And this will bleed over into our official like other guy discussion, even though there's not really a great option (laughs) other than Corky. But do we think that Violet and Corky will last? What are our thoughts? I think they'll do okay. They've got $2 million and they're bonded by a shared uh, secret of (laughs) having (laughs) murdered a whole bunch of, well, I guess one person (laughs) between them, but they know about the murders of several other high profile mobsters. Yeah, I don't, because I I wondered about that too, Sadie. And I was envisioning that, of course, they're going to be together for some time. And it's going to take a while for like the sex bond to like even start to cool off between the two of them. But I don't know though, like, because what, what would they do next? Where would they go? Um, Violet obviously does not want to, you know, work at being air quotes cared for by a man anymore, like ever. And Corky's skills are fixing household items and trucks and thievery. I don't know. Maybe they will be together till they're little old cute noir grandmas. I have faith in them. You don't have grandkids. Because I don't think they're going to have children, but I think they'll be together forever. Yeah. I think that they have the potential to last forever also because- Again, they do have the shared trauma. And second of all, I feel like they clicked in a way that was very fast. And I do think that they have a lot to still work out and talk about. Because I don't think that Corky is still totally accepting of Violet's past. Although she has to get over it because whatever. Um, but I think that they definitely have the, the wherewithal to last In the way, like, it just seems like two people who are both very dogged about surviving on their own and, like, to find another person who's like that, I feel like they're just kind of, haha, bound together. My thoughts. My two cents. (laughs) I mean, what I love about the movie is it's simultaneously, like, you know, a noir and an homage to classic noir, but also, like, a queer fairy tale, you know, of, like, um... Uh, you know, breaking the princess out of the castle and running away. And uh, I don't know, like, to me, that last line that that Caesar slash Jen pointed out is so perfect, where 
she asks, do you know what the difference is between you and me? Nothing. Because it's like, it's such a powerfully simple statement about like the eroticization of sameness, I think, which is like often missed in like explorations of Wulawa relationships that aren't as expertly done, you know, that like, I don't know, in, in, the the heteronormative world there are all these sayings like you know opposites attract and all this kind of thing that that i think is meant to normalize the idea that your partner needs to be like very different from you and in a lot of willowa relationships my own included you know Corey and i have personality differences sure but like our minds work in very similar ways to the point where often it's like, are we the same person is something we say to each other often. So like in, you know, I think heteronormative world can be uh, like icked out by that, by the idea of two people in a relationship uh, who are like, too closely matching each other. And I love that this movie's queer embrace is like, no, mm-hmm. like we are both the leather jacket queer women. Yeah. Yeah. And also because it called back to that fight that they had where Corky was trying to not accept Violet, you know, and drive distance between them. Where she was very much trying to say, we're not the same. Um, I'm not like you. I don't. And uh, Violet's like, oh, you fucking think so? Like, <laughs> you're good at something. You do it for money. I'm good at something. I do it for money. It, you know, this is this is who we are. And that was just, oh, my heart just swelled like 15 times when Corky brought it back up to Violet and gave her that little not much. And Gina Gershon smirk before they ride off. Ugh, amazing. So I also love the line when Joe Pantoliano is like, what did she ever do for you? Uh, fucking dark <laughs> in here. And Jennifer Tilly, oh, you like, can say it better than I, I can, Jen. He comes in and he's all like, he goes on this whole thing about queer women being degenerate or whatever. And like, what did she ever do for you that Samantha can do better than I? And then Jennifer Tilly's like, everything you never could. And it's like, <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> you think Violet ever came while she was fucking you, Caesar? <laughs> I love that this movie also like breaks down this idea of toxic masculinity. And that's why I feel like the mafia is just the perfect example of that. And that's why I love that the mafia is like the the male force in this movie because Violet's relationship with Caesar is kind of complicated because she's technically a kept woman, but also, I don't know, it's like she... Ah, it's it's so good. Like it's so complicated and complex. And like she does feel some level of fondness for him a little bit. And you can see that when she's like asking him to run at the end. And then when he says no, she shoots him. So not much fondness. But there's this weird kind of fondness between the two, but also no love lost. And it's very interesting. And I think Caesar gets so, so angry, not only because Violet was cheating on him and tried to frame him for stealing $2 million, but also 
that she found a fulfilling relationship with a woman and then that demeans him and just kind of spirals him out of control and it's ah it's so good and also at the end when mickey asks violet again to be his girlfriend as though he can't conceive that she would want to not be involved with the fucked up shit that goes on in the mafia anymore after this yeah we jokingly call the queer community the rainbow mafia but you're right sadie it's like heteronormativity like is mafia-esque in its operation (laughs) and the role that like it ascribes to women is like well you be there and look nice when my friend come over and relax me when I'm too tense and um, and will you be seen as a person? No, but you'll be rewarded with a place to live or nice things or, you know, um, in its most traditionalist and extreme forms, like that's what it looks like. And I love, as you pointed out, how this movie uses the mafia as a metaphor for that and how, how Violet literally kind of discovers this alternate universe right next door um, where her life can be structured differently and where she can be seen as a person. Yeah. Samantha, the alternate universe next door. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Corky's just there like in like like the world's closet and then when the movie finally ends they're they're both you know like it's fascinating because I know that this movie mostly just takes place in like two sets because of budgetary constraints this was the, the Wachowski sisters first movie um independently financed by a producer Dino De Laurentiis I believe and and so like like you know it had to just have two sets but I think it's evocative that the only time we really see them out in the open together is when they're about to like go away in a truck and the other times we see them just kind of like trapped in these rooms and it shows how I don't know it's just about closeting of all all types we definitely need um a response gif of that part where Corky still tied up at her hands and feet comes busting out of the closet literally (laughs) 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 I love like the movie is subtle when it needs to be and like not subtle what it doesn't want to be and shouldn't be you know like it never feels like a very special episode about like lesbians or about you know the relationship between women who are primarily attracted to women and women who are kind of more in the middle of the Kinsey spectrum or that kind of thing. Like, but like it addresses all of those things without ever feeling like it's really wanting to teach you a lesson. Um, And I, I, that's something that is missing to me from a lot of like contemporary LGBTQ content where it seems like sometimes the writers are afraid you won't get it unless like, someone gives a impassioned speech making all of the points that the piece of fiction is meant to convey um, within it. Yeah, I mean like, <laughs> hi, my name's Corky and I'm bound <laughs> up in this closet and a relationship <laughs> with Violet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, but yeah, I enjoyed so much. It walks this razor edge of really showing the women as people and the danger. And I mean, Corky, like he fucking, well, he hit both of them in the face. You know, there's no preciousness about the violence that the women are somehow excluded from it. But then also it did it. That was the only part that on the first watch, I got a little sick to my stomach with fear thinking that Violet was going to lose a finger too, like Shelly, you know, but it conveyed all of that and the feeling and the very real sense of danger and the heightened adrenaline without doing any torture porn of women to us, you know? Yeah, there was only one severed finger in this movie and it belonged to Chris Maloney? Who was it that got the finger cut off? No, he was, it was Shelly, the guy who had originally stolen the $2.176 million. Christopher Maloney was kicking him, but it was Mickey who came in with the, I think he might have had Chris Maloney do the cutting. I closed my eyes at that part. I do own a lot of tin sticks, but I have never used them to cut anyone's finger off yet. (laughs) Well, speak for yourself, Jen. (laughs) Also, everyone in this movie needs a tailor. All the all the mafia guys. What oh were you going to say God. before Sadie, though? Uh, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to make a very important point about queer cinema. <laughs> no, I can't. Please I'm, I'm going to make a very stupid, Proceed. needless point about queer cinema. I Because the thing is, I don't mean to be a hater, but I feel like queer films now, like... Love, Simon, Happiest Season, etc., etc. While good, they're just, they lose what makes queer films great, which is that they are unique. Like, they're not afraid to tell unique stories within this, like, non-heteronormative relationship. And they, like... Mm queer films especially of the of the 90s and they're just you know like when they when they like but I'm a cheerleader right like such a campy weird movie that takes risks and I definitely don't think that movie would be made today I don't think Bound would be made today and if it was it would be laid on so thick And it would be so much of like a girl boss type movie that the lesbian Willowood nature of it would be like pushed to the backside. There would be like a needle drop every five seconds. Yes. And it, it would just, it would lose what makes it so good. And so... I just, I want more queer films to be in the mainstream. Like I want it. And so... But part of it is just that films now in general are just kind of bad most of the time. Like they just don't have that certain je ne sais quoi (laughs) that they used to. But especially with queer films, I just, I want more of them, but I don't want more like generic bland movies that don't embrace the very rich tradition of what queer films have. Sadie, you are so correct. Like this, a lot of queer films films now, and it's not just that it's about coming out stories, like even the ones that aren't coming out stories, but it's almost like there's an emphasis on so many of them seem clearly made for a straight audience. And it's like trying yeah. to like sanitize if that, but to be like, oh, we're queer, but we love and live just like you and just want to be normal with the white people 
picket fence and the baby like you. Like I loved uh, the thing about Harry, but literally the end of that is like, look, now we're cute parents of a cute little baby together. And like, it, you know, <laughs> and this yeah. movie is just like, hey, guess what? We're queer and we want to fuck and we're going to rob the mob. <laughs> and <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And I love the soundtrack to it. Um, that like yes. when in the dialogue scenes, there's this light piano that sounds like Resident Evil Save Room music. <laughs> It's amazing. And if it were made today, Sadie, there would be like a different pop song like every every two minutes. I feel like yeah. I think there are like two needle drops in this and they're both used very effectively. I think one's in the, the bar scene, right? Where we're getting kind of more formally introduced to uh, uh, Corky's sexual uh, habits. And um, <laughs> we're, and then over the credits, right? It isn't like she's a lady on the credits. Yeah. It's yeah. just both used so effectively because it's sparse, you know, because it's not anxious to like flood you with, uh, with overload you with sensation every second. They're not going to understand what's going on. We have to reemphasize it right now through the lyrics on the soundtrack. You know, yeah, we need the like Samantha B theme song or whatever boys want to be her to like play as they shoot uh, Joe Pantoliano or something. Oh God, you know? You're, oh, and that's the other. Okay, so queer queer cinema now is largely we're just like you, the straights. We're non threatening. Don't worry about us and accept us. But then if like not only queer movies but movies with women doing anything, stepping outside of the usual heteronormative patriarchy situation is is so always framed as like girl boss now. I mean, I enjoyed Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez um, and Constance Wu enormously, but that was like the girl bossiest movie. And, you know... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like that age-old debate in the queer community between radicalism and assimilation. And I think like we can fall into this trap with entertainment where we sit around idly on social media thinking like, no, I, I want a Fast and the Furious movie except like they're all gay bodybuilders or something like that. We, we sort of imagine that we just want like mainstream fare with like LGBTQ people plugged into it. And then when they do it like they did with Happiest Season or something, I end up being like, no, I actually like didn't want this. Like <laughs> I want what we had before, yeah. which were like weird under like underfunded strange movies that straddled genre lines and, you know, blurred the lines of like between genre the same way like queer people blurred the lines of like sexual orientation boxes, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know what, I, I'm gonna say something. And I know that Jen disagrees with me. I know this already before I say it. But I think one of the recent queer movies that I liked that was also like a bigger mainstream movie was The Old Guard. And I loved oh, yeah. it because it felt queer on multiple levels. Whereas uh, other movies like I, The Happiest I mean, Season is just like, what? I, you know what? I'm actually not going to entertain what you have to say. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've decided that I'm not going to. I just I'm wish gonna... the old guard had a little more sense of fun to it. 
Same, same. That yeah. is my big problem with the old guard, actually, is that I thought it was going to be my favorite movie of all time. At the beginning, when Charlize unleashes the axe and starts going to town, I was like, fuck yes. But I think that it was... um it was much less of, it wasn't, you know, like the rom-com style. We're going to prove to the straights how unthreatening we are, obviously. But it just felt like yeah. such a joyless slog um, for most of it to me after that. I think is why I am a confirmed hater of the old guard. Um, and I wanted there to be a little more fun. And then I wanted, I guess, the serious moments to be a little more earned on screen instead of it just all being attributed to their... When, when you have to make the comic to fill in everything that happened so that you know why they're all sad, you know? <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. And I was bummed out. Um, I, I was, uh, uh, well, we'll talk about this. We'll do the old guard someday. And I will talk about my uh, bummed outedness well, about the treatment of the Asian woman in the water coffin. But <laughs> but well, I did, I love so the, the I he's not my boyfriend was- scene. Sadie, I will give you that. That isolated was fucking oh, yeah. amazing. Like, well, I what I again, what I loved about the old guard is that it had, it at least in my opinion, multiple layers of queerness. So there was the overt queerness, the relationship between two of the characters, Nikki and Joe, but there was also the layers of Charlize Theron and also all of them just kind of existing outside of the world you know like they are participants but also they are not part of it and they have this found family with each other that is and you know found family is like one of the staples of queer anything um and also at the end where they kind of see how much good they've done I think that that's very indicative, you know, of like how much the queer community has done for society as a whole. And yet society doesn't really acknowledge it in any way. Um, so there's just like queer themes in the movie that they really. I like it in. actually better after you explain it that way, because that was another part that I fucking hated that they're all like, we're so secretive. We're only active every 50 years. We No one has ever heard of us or knows us. And then like Duder's like, here's your photo wall of you posing with all your good deeds. But I was just already being a hater by then. So I probably wouldn't have minded it if I hadn't already been in that mindset. <laughs> <laughs> I think Xbox I like it better. Achievements uh, <laughs> list. <laughs> now that I've heard Sadie's explanation, I do. I appreciate it a bit more. <laughs> and like in the in that same way bound right has the overt queerness the relationship between Corky and Violet but there's also the concept of of the otherness of Violet and Corky being separate from the mafia which is this kind of symbol metaphor of of masculinity and heteronormativity yes. and Violet discovers this alternate way of living with Corky and the concept of, of freedom on multiple levels, both freedom from, you know, abuse of Caesar, but also freedom from pretending to be someone that she's not and being able to actually live her true authentic life with Corky in the future. And ah, it's so good. And also just badass women 
in leather jackets. Yes. Oh my god. And like, so, like okay, I could not stop thinking while watching this. Um, I don't remember if it was last week or week before. Anyway, recently on one of our episodes when Samantha uh, was in a, a bit of a bad mood, but correctly said that like people making movies or writing things that we just do the same thing over and over again, because humans are stupid. And we have like one story to tell that we keep trying to work out for ourselves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with Sense8, it's a little bit more about queerness at large, you know, than The Matrix and and Bound. But the Wachowskis, I think there certainly is an element of truth to that. Although even if humans are stupid, they obviously are, you know, amongst the best of us. They are geniuses. But this... (laughs) It's all on a range of we're, you know, bound by having dumb little monkey brains, all of us. But... We, there can still be genius dumb monkey brains. <laughs> we do our best. Um, but the Wachowskis work about women or people who are not men trapped in a system of masculinity and how they cope and how they survive it and navigate it and how they escape it. And this one was just so, it was like, oh, watching the, because I grew up on the Matrix, you know, but watching this after having grown up on the Matrix, it's like, wow, they they made the movie to start with. And then to appeal to the wider populace, it had to be Keanu Reeves, you know, but (laughs) it's right there. You know what it reminded me of? Um, I, I, I hate to invoke invoke his name after we've just been discussing such a pleasant filmography, um, but uh, Christopher Nolan's first movie was called Following. Did either of you ever see this movie? No. I did not. I, see, I watched The Hunger. Wait, no, not The Hunger. That's the one with David Bowie and um, Catherine Deneuve. The Ravenous. I've watched that a bunch of times, but I didn't even know he had a movie before that. Is that it Was Ravenous a Nolan movie? I thought it went following Memento, then like... Dark was Knight. Was it not a Nolan movie? Did I just stuff. maybe I just put it as a Nolan movie in my mind because Guy Pierce is the lead? Mm, maybe yeah. Mem- I think because it I was following it Memento. Like- then he did some Robin Williams, Al Pacino, Alaska oh. crime thriller. Because um, I thought it seemed like more charming than a Nolan movie. No offense, Christopher Nolan. Like Nolan, go go cry into your millions. But, yeah, um, some offense maybe. <laughs> but like, uh, following is this like short black and white movie, very low budget, and it's it's um it's a crime story about a guy who uh just like starts following people around London and follows someone who does some interesting crime stuff and then gets tangled up in this twisted little plot. And, you know, it has a killer sting of an ending. Um, And you can watch that movie and see how it like perfectly kind of like tees up Chris Nolan to go on and do the rest of his career and get financing for bigger and better movies. And the visual language is pretty confident and like similar to what you see from Chris Nolan today of like, you know, lots of hurried shots of like zooming into little details to amp up tension. Um, But like tellingly, it also just has no real like emotional core to it. And that's the long running critique of Chris Nolan is that he makes these movies that are like formally very interesting, but emotionally pretty hollow. And I was thinking about the following because like Bound is the Wachowskis following except like it has both the like 
it has all three. It has the trifecta. It has the killer plot. It has the strong, confident direction and the great visual language. And it has like an emotional core to it. And it's just like, what else could you want from a movie? <gasps> it really is just amazing. Like the th- I, one of the things that I love about the Wachowskis that I do hate about Christopher Nolan is like Tenet. Have I talked about Tenet yet? I'm sure that I have. Let's get into it because I watched it. Let's go off. I just am going to listen to you two. <laughs> I, it it was one of those movies that was so needlessly complicated that I was extremely bored by it. And by the end, I feel like my head hurt and I felt like it it said nothing of value. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I just, I watched it and I was like, okay, that's great. Like there, it it, it was just, I feel like Christopher Nolan just sits down and he's just like, how do I just like, wouldn't it be crazy if, and then he just goes from there. And that's fine. But also, I was mad about it. And the thing about (laughs) movies like The Matrix and Bound as well is that they are also well, Bound is more straightforward, but like The Matrix, it's it's very complicated, but in a way where you're like, oh, damn, like that is like crazy. Like, you know, like it, it's just like mind blowing, but it also is saying something. But with um, Robert Pattinson and his little his little thing that makes you walk backwards, it, it means nothing to me. <laughs> The temporal pincer movements, um, which sound like something unpleasant that happens on a toilet. Um, I'm sorry. But, but, uh, no, Sadie, I love the image of like Christopher Nolan with like a riddle book. And it's like, how could your son be your own grandfather? And Christopher Nolan is like, hmm, I'll make a two and a half hour movie about that. Oh, my God. That's just time travel 101 shit. Anyway, but, I will, yeah. Uh, that's Samantha. not a feature of Tenet, but it could be a future Chris <laughs> Nolan film easily. Also, I have to complain about a certain Tenet line before we break. And that's, um, <laughs> there, there's one like prominent female character in Tenet and she is the, you know, there is a little bit of a bound tie-in because she's the wife of a man involved in organized crime. And, uh, but unlike Violet, she has had a son with this man and her son is her sole character motivation because that is the only character motivation Christopher Nolan can imagine for a woman in this particular film. And there's a moment where Robert Pattinson and, Denzel Washington's son. What is his name? John. I don't. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I thought it was John, but now I'm unsure. I'm going to look it up so I can name him. John David Washington. Yeah. Uh, so there's a moment where Robert Pattinson and John David Washington are talking about like the evildoers' plan and how like uh, uh, it threatens everything. And Robert Pattinson is like. If he pulls it off, the entire world will explode. And and the woman is sitting there listening and she goes, including my son. 
I had to pause oh the movie because I was so mad Same. at that line. I was like, does Christopher Nolan think that all women are dumb bitches? Because what the fuck was that line? Huh. Anyway. I immediately paused it, went to Twitter and searched, you know, quote, tenant, close quote, and quote, including my son, close quote, and just spent 10 minutes like basking in (laughs) great jokes about that line because it was egregious. Sheesh. Don't watch Tenet, watch Bound instead. Yes. I would like to take this time, actually, while you guys were talking about Tenet, to apologize to Antonia Bird, who directed the excellent movie Ravenous, which came out in 1999, the year of ultimate excellent movies. I am truly sorry that I thought Christopher Nolan did what you accomplished. I regret it. I regret the error. I think uh, Chris Nolan's following may have been a 99 as well. Mm. And you know what else? About Robert Pattinson, not Chris Nolan. I think the cinematic world would just be so much better on the whole. It probably is in like the multiverse universe where Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson had all of each other's roles following Twilight. Oh my God, Jen, I feel like I'm going to say a sadism here and say that my my third eye is open. (laughs) Are you gooped and gagged? I am gooped and gagged. My vibrations are are full of vibranium. And uh, (laughs) Jesus Christ. So Robert Pattinson would be in Underwater. Mm -hmm. Kristen Stewart would be in Tenet. Mm -hmm. Kristen Stewart would be Batman. She would. And her Batman would go down. (laughs) Robert Pattinson would be in Charlie's Angels, which I like. And he would be amazing in that role. (laughs) incredible that part at the beginning where Kristen Stewart had to act straight for like two minutes before she like pulls off her wig and kicks the guy in the face I feel like Robert Pattinson would have just crushed that in a way that would have put her to shame in that role honestly we are truly living in the dark timeline where they did not play each other's roles and probably can you imagine the 2016 election as a result of that in that uh that Snow White movie she did where she was badass Snow White See, he would have been great in that. Damn. She would have been, oh my There's God. literally she no- She could have been that weird, uh, that king in the movie with Timothy Chalamet where like they fight <gasps> in the mud. Oh. oh my God. They would have killed it as each other. Oh my God. Her in the lighthouse opposite Willem <gasps> Dafoe. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Happiest season might not work as well. Uh, Yeah, happiest season. Well, Harper would have had to be cast differently for sure. But Robert Pattinson should definitely play Princess Diana, in my opinion. (laughs) One thousand, a million percent. Oh, I feel like we've solved the universe. This has been a very productive conversation. And (laughs) it was all thanks to... Lana and Lily Wachowski. Damn. Okay, guys, can we take a five minute bathroom break? Because I need to pee, but I honestly am ready to keep talking about this movie for a while. We have not even gotten into, I mean, not that there are many other guy options, but we have to talk about the characters a little bit more. Okay. Okay. Sadie, are you leaving too, or are you staying here? Should I stay or should I go? No, I'm staying. That's the question. Oh, well then <laughs> let's let's have a little bonus content in here. Ooh, um, 
Do you mind if I co-opted and talk about my new favorite pasta dish, which is avocado pasta? Yeah, is this inspired <laughs> by the Robert Pattinson talk? You're going to share your disgusting uh, like one pot pasta <laughs> recipe that involves a microwave and like wait, peanut wait, butter for wait, some reason? What is his called? The um the we hold on. I need to remind myself what his what his is called. Like the the picatone. Oh yeah. Um, While you're looking it up, I'll I'll tell you that I um I watched Elf last night. Elf and Bound. Ma- oh, the Piccolini Coschino. I I didn't even look it up. It came to me. <laughs> yes, Elf and Bound make a very interesting double feature. But in Elf, you watched uh, you Elf. Know, they famously eat spaghetti with uh, maple syrup. Poured over Why were you watching Elf? It, which seems in like June? it would be a TikTok challenge. I was babysitting my my nephew and was trying to find a children's movie that um, I could I could tolerate without my brain feeling like it was shrinking. Understandable. Um, but tell me about your pasta dish. Is it better than spaghetti with maple syrup? Um, it's delicious. And I was very, very into it like two years ago. But I realized that avocados were too hard to upkeep. And so I stopped. But then I discovered many avocados at Aldi. And it has changed my whole life. But it is essentially you, you make some fettuccine, you make some fettuccine. Then separately, you I just use some vegetarian meatballs, but you can use whatever. You fry those up, some garlic, olive oil, red pepper flakes, all of that. Separately, you take an avocado and you get all of the meat out, all of the flesh of the avocado out, and you mash it up with a fork into a fine paste with a little bit of olive oil and garlic salt. And then you just add all of it together and you're done. <laughs> the the avocado like the sound of garlic salt. is so good. It's like a creamy green sauce that replaces Alfredo in my heart now. And it's so good. It's unparalleled. Mm, you have so to try it's like it. a, a pesto uh, uh, texture maybe. And it's fully like a sauce. Like it turns into, and then like I use some, avo- some pasta water. I almost said avocado water water i use some pasta water oh, to reserved kind of loosen it pasta up. water yes and it turns into just like the creamiest like it's almost like an alfredo sauce and it's so good but it's green because it's avocado welcome back jen i have we no idea what you guys are talking about recipes but it sounds delicious Robert Pattinson's oh god that's <laughs> Robert Pattinson, like, I understood when that happened why he has always given off such strong little brother energy to me. Yeah, I think Joe and Robert Pattinson have a lot in common. They're just like both people who were like born as just like out of line weirdos who like can't really like cope probably like with normal jobs and normal lives, but they have like very societally approved jawlines. And so... They, uh, they are, that is what they are paid for. <laughs> Thank God for that. Where would Joe be without that jawline? Damn. I don't, I, I hate He'd probably be fine. That was a mean thing for me to say. He also, he's a really good artist. Um, you know, I like to tease him about, you know, being beautiful professionally. So he can handle it though. <laughs> well, we have no serious other guy proposals, except maybe the bartender. 
she could be a great quirky love interest. The bartender definitely could. If they weren't like buds already, I feel like she could be a good quirky love interest. Quirky tried to pick up that one woman in the bar, but she was with a cop. So obviously that was not um, happening with Quirky. I do want to say one thing that obviously I do not, um, I, I cannot argue for Caesar as the other guy, but I really enjoyed that in the scene when, um, you know, he had to clean, he had to literally launder the money that had blood all over it, that Violet's just chilling in there doing her thing. He did not, like, he obviously trusts her enough. Like you were saying, Sadie, they have such a complicated relationship that there's definitely fondness between them, if not love. And he obviously trusts her enough to let her in. Like, I mean, he's telling her very frankly about everything that happened. And like, she she knows about all of his business. But then when he's doing the actual labor of laundering the money, he's not trying to pull her into like ironing it you know what could be you know i don't know a more like feminine coded task like caesar handled all his business himself <laughs> and he did not try to bring violet in on that and that was uh i think that i my respect for him at that point in the movie i was like uh oh he is going to turn out to be a much more formidable opponent at the end of this uh kind of ratcheted up when he is like literally like hitting the steam to iron every bill all on his own. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm marinating on your, on your statement. I, I was sitting here trying to think of like a good other guy that I could also pitch out into the room. And I just, I don't, but here is what I will say. I do find Joe Pantaleone. I think that that's his name. God, I'm so sorry. I had Tia Pantaleone. Um, oh, I know. I keep trying to say Tia Panatoni. It's like Pan- Pantoliano. That's it. I keep trying Tia to Leone's say Panatonis. <laughs> Tia Leone's Panatonis. Callback. Um, Joe Pantoliano. Sorry, Joe. Respect. Yes. <laughs> but it, anyway, I do. F- I, I find, do find him, him fascinating. Hot. I find him mesmerizing. He really is, yeah. and I think Fucking that. The reason, <laughs> the the real reason that they couldn't be together forever is that their relationship was transactional from the beginning. Like that's the whole yeah. the whole castle, you know. Like he really does trust her and considers her a partner to him. But then when she is trying to leave, there's that suspicion there because that's his relationship with everybody in his whole life. Like, oh, you might be fucking me over. I got to pull the gun on you now, you know, like that. Yeah. He, uh, as long as things are going smoothly with him, then things are fine. But if the shit hits the fan like that, it's really that's where it's going to go. <laughs> you would have to be ride or die, probably die because, you yeah. know, he's a sort of like what, you know, Sadie was bringing up earlier about Violet and Corky both being people who are so focused on survival. And actually, so is Caesar, but he's focused yeah. on a survival that depends on staying in this system of masculinity, and they are interested in mm. leaving that for something else. Jen, you just mm. wrote a grad school mm. dissertation in a sentence. <laughs> Take I a can bow. taste it oh, on my I tongue. Will. Thank you. Thank you. I in you this are, essay, you I are will. so right. <laughs> You are so right. Like, I I do think that that maybe stems into why Violet and Caesar have been together so long, because they've been together for like six, seven years, right? Like, it's been a while. And so I think think about the time that Quirky did in prison, Violet's been with Caesar. Yeah, they kind of made that parallel. That parallel. 
because I, they they do they don't love each other. I don't. I, Violet definitely doesn't love him, and I don't think that he loves her in any normal way. However, they've stuck together because I think that they are at their core a very similar personality, but it's just one was destined for tragedy because it's obsessed with conforming to the normal standards of of masculinity that he's imprisoned himself in, whereas Violet is not. And and there's so many points where Caesar could get himself out of it. Like, I know that he feels like he was backed into a corner, but it's also just like, just... I just don't understand. Just get like a normal job. (laughs) (laughs) There's that part where he's like saying, he's trying to put it off on Violet. Like, like that she, you made me kill Gino. And she's like, no, you, you did that. And that really is like the, yeah, that he's, he's in this system that everybody dies. There's no fucking happy ending. Gino is the, like, whatever. I can't, I think I said in the summary that he runs Chicago. I think he was actually canonically like the brother of the guy who runs Chicago, but he got shot down too. Like (laughs) there's no peaceful death for these men who are involved in this. And yet they're all so fucking married to the lifestyle. Yeah. The, the mafia is like an MLS where you don't just go into debt you also like get shot (laughs) (laughs) oh that scene was so fucking good where it's revealed that that's what um what caesar does when he's he pulls out this astounding amount of cash money and is just whipping it off into corky's hand you know, and it was very much, even though he still doesn't take Corky seriously as a rival at that point, he views her as, you know, masculine enough that he needs to intimidate her the way that he would another man, you know, that he, he needs to put this money in her hand that she's beholden to him for. Oh, and her oh. face while that was happening, that was just such a well-played scene on all parts. And it's so brilliant how it's staged where he comes in and it first is animated because he thinks that he thinks that she's a man moving in on Violet and then she turns around and he's like oh I'm no longer threatened anymore Um, speaking to Mm -hmm. the way in which like men don't see like affection between women as like romantic uh unless it's like i don't know like <laughs> blue is the warmest color level sex happening right in front i was of them. just like okay i was at that part i was freaking out also i was thinking about scent was the thing that i thought was gonna like blow it all up through this entire movie i was like the rug is soaked with blood the cops are gonna smell it but that part also i was so like after the first in the first five minutes of this movie five to ten minutes my tension was ramped up because you know they're gonna fuck Violet and Corky and I'm like ready for that to happen and then after that it was like anxiety tension about they're gonna get caught for fucking because then Caesar goes in to shake her hand that has just been all up inside of Violet and I was like how is he not gonna notice <laughs> like what the she yeah uh, oh. she should have been like I was cleaning your drains or something like yeah. that you know, like the just her hand well it's sort of like you know uh the women fucking and then like it, it's sort of like him being like oh they're only cops like he's only a straight man he won't notice <laughs> Has the time come for us to rate Bound? Mm. I believe it has. I believe. I believe we're ready. I reserve the right to go last. Oh God. Okay, I'll go first. I go ahead. No, Sadie. Oh, if you want, or if you're ready, you can you can roll on. But I I'm ready tonight. 
Do it. I, out of a, on a scale of five, I give this movie the six shots that Violet unloaded into Caesar's body while he's standing in the white paint, plus Bitch. Shelly's finger for a score <laughs> of seven to five. <laughs> I will follow up with you and give it five bloody severed fingers out of five. I loved this movie. I will be watching it again. Absolutely. I loved how this had all the essence of a mafia movie that I want with the lesbian relationship to keep me enthralled. It was perfectly made for me and it was made the year I was born. So it was meant to be cosmically. That is all. It was. It was made for Sadie Corgi Collins. Also, how much more interesting was this to have a mafia movie from the perspective of the mafia mall? you know, and instead of the dudes who were shooting each other. Oh, okay. Samantha, carry on. Sadie, Jen, do you know what the difference is between your opinion of Bound and my opinion of Bound? What is it, Samantha? (laughs) Uh, Me neither. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) You needed to say no in Jennifer Tilly voice. Oh, shit. (laughs) Wait, okay, wait, say it again, say it again. (laughs) Sadie, Jen, do you know what the difference is between your opinion of Bound and my opinion of Bound? No. Me neither. Ah, perfect. Um, It's the best movie we've covered on this podcast so far, I think. Oh, uh, it's well. So good. <laughs> I mean, we Sorry, did cover Shrek, Shrek too. So it, it is a tie. <laughs> Jen, what a horrible mob punishments should people subject our podcast to well um <clears throat> if uh <laughs> i don't know why i'm thinking about the rotor rooter right now like jesus that was the most disgusting thing of all time that was a bathtub that had a lot of bodies down there anyway you should just unload a whole clip onto our ratings if you listen to us on like apple podcasts or systems where we can be rated and give us that old five stars and if you dislike us um and just you know fuss at us on Twitter or something or send us a mean email and don't mess up our ratings and we would appreciate that we can be reached on Twitter at Y-S-S-T-O-G or though we check it irregularly our email at Y-S-S-T-O-G podcast at gmail.com And if you would like to help fund us so that we can keep streaming these movies legally and discussing them for your and our pleasure each week, you can give us a little cash on Patreon at, wait, it's patreon.com slash Y-S-S-T-O-G. And if you do so, you get access to our Discord server where we are about to go in there and start hollering about Bound because we were like all for the past two nights and we're ready to unleash it on the rest of you. God, we just, we need to be making some GIFs, guys. I, I need like there a need GIF to of be this more bound for GIFs. all situations. There's yes. only one that I found on Giphy of like the elevator scene. Um, mm. And that's good, but that's just the start. Like, damn. We oh, we need many more. Xenalon, this is a cry specifically to you. Dang, they meet in an elevator. Corey and I met in an elevator. <gasps> you I did. need to show Corey this movie. <gasps> oh my God. And I made Justin watch this movie. I'm sure she would love it. And flipped his shit. A lot of times, like he he always listens to the podcast every week, which I know Corey does not. And also I often don't, even though I am a co-host and I record it, which is kind of hypocritical. But um, anyway, the only criticisms of the straight man who I made watch this movie, who he also was screaming loudly about how it's the best movie in the world, like a lot, were that when you take a sink pipe apart, 
Apparently, it is truly disgusting. There's lots of nasty stuff in your sink. And so obviously, what this canonically tells us is that Violet specifically knows how to take apart a sink and cleaned it out pre-inviting Corky over there so that it would just be a smooth, erotic experience instead of getting nasty stuff all over her hands. (laughs) That that is perfect. (laughs) Since Justin listens, did he notice that I did, despite my promise, edit both of you saying cocksuckers after Sadie recounted <laughs> our list of patrons? I did not even ask him. Um, he didn't say it to me. Traitor. I'm going to have to tell him to... I know I have to go back and listen. What I was talking about squirters and cocksuckers. I talked about gushers in this movie. <sighs> uh, Sadie, shall we Shall we shout out these, these patrons? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Yes, okay. I would love to. Fuck I would love patron. nothing we more. We will touch <laughs> no, their no, hands I love the, through the I, beautiful decorative wallpaper. <laughs> I love. I could. I could kiss you all, unless you don't want me to kiss you. Otherwise, I will shower you with petals of roses. Anyway, our lovely patreons: Logan, Logan Mayonnaise, Andrew, Althea, Xenalon, Sharon, Justin, Evan, and Liz. We love you all so much. I could kiss you slash shower you in rose petals or both? Question mark. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Write to us at ysstogpodcast at gmail.com indicating your preference. Do, do we have emails, Sadie? It's been like four months. Yeah, since Sadie, we've check our email. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'll check. I'll check. Let's see. <gasps> we have one email. <laughs> one email. Oh, it's her email. We have, email? We have one um, from Xenalon. It is a movie list. <gasps> Which I will be looking at. And then um, another email from a person named Eric. And the subject line is, oh my God, you guys. And it it concerns our Legally Blonde episode. <laughs> oh, all right. Tell us more. Is it long? Um, Would they it be, wrote, be possible to read it aloud? Oh, yeah. it's Of course. It says, two episodes about Legally Blonde and no mention of the Broadway musical adaptation. Well, I have never seen it, as an aside. Uh, they go on to say, seems like a glaring omission. If you haven't been fortunate enough to see it, not only will the subject of this email make zero sense, but you are missing out. I've provided the YouTube link below. I'm not going to read the YouTube <gasps> link because that would be insane. HTTPS colon slash slash. This sad slash Scorpio cusper is not too proud to admit my (gasps) wife and i both saw it on broadway and on tour in seattle thanks for keeping the great podcast going it cracks me up every week eric in seattle are you sleepless i love you eric eric You and Ariel canonically have watched Legally Blonde the musical and enjoyed it. And now we will make Sadie send the link to all of us so that we can see it as well. Okay. Did you just name Eric's wife Ariel arbitrarily based off The Little Mermaid? I did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because... (laughs) 
in my mind, as Sadie was reading Go this, off. I was just thinking like Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid the whole time. So Eric, you're very handsome and we are very grateful for your listenership. We love you and we hope that you and Ariel are doing incredibly well in Seattle. Yes, there is a mermaid in Seattle, the Starbucks mermaid, and she looks out <laughs> over the entire city from her clock tower at Starbucks HQ. And when you both that's, come visit me, we will stand under her gaze. That's what Samantha drinks to increase her vibrations is coffee from Starbucks. It's about the vibrations. <laughs> You don't know shit, Caesar.